Song 421 has been announced, and we'll use that after the sermon this, this afternoon. Always good to be able to come together for the purpose of offering worship unto God, to encourage one another, and to do those things in spirit and in truth that we find written and encouraged in the Word of God. One of the things about the New Testament, of course, is that it presents to us that which is the will of God for you and me today. And we certainly are thankful for God's clarity so that we can understand what He has told us. This evening, I would invite you to consider with me the first of a two-part series of lessons dealing with a very interesting character mentioned in the New Testament. As you can see on the slide, it's going to be none other than Melchizedek. It is with that in mind that I would perhaps use this lesson, at least in part, to prepare us for what will really be developed more thoroughly next Sunday evening, if, if it be the will of God. But to do that, may I at least invite you to consider this, this slide that will be an introductory one as follows. Isn't it rather interesting that as you and I open the pages of God's divine book, that we encounter, of course, a whole host of realities in that God has addressed His will once and for all time for everybody. It meets every need that we have, but it presents that truth in some very intriguing ways. At the top of that slide, I might ask, there are situations in the Word of God wherein the truth is presented very simply. A direct commandment, and I've listed baptism as an obvious one. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It doesn't take really that much appreciation to understand what that says. But isn't it true? There are some layers of truth contained in the Bible which one has to dig much more notably in order to mine the fullness of the truth contained in that statement. I might suggest to you this evening that Melchizedek, it seems to me, falls in that category. As you and I read through the Word of God, we encounter Melchizedek on a relatively few occasions. The book of Genesis, the book of Psalms, the book of Hebrews. That's it. And yet, by the time we first encounter him in Genesis... We learn a few initial truths about Him, and perhaps that whets our appetite, but at that point we have no idea what will be developed from it. By the time we get to the book of Psalms, it, needless to say, develops within us a tremendous appreciation because we see there what we had not seen in Genesis and maybe would not have expected it. And by the time we get to Hebrews, that which we saw then and that which has been thoroughly developed and is now a critical part of the New Testament era is amazing. At the bottom of that slide, I would ask you to note some people have called the truth about Melchizedek as the single most profound truth in all the Bible. The deepest, single most profound truth. I don't know that I could disagree with that. Perhaps you have often considered it yourself, why don't we then for tonight and next Sunday evening turn our attention to the ways in which Melchizedek teaches us some rather interesting and profound truths. As usual, it would seem to me the wisest way to begin that is to first appreciate what the setting is in which we first encounter this gentleman. 
You might want to revisit the book of Genesis with me, for there is where we'll encamp for the next little bit of our lesson tonight. You might recall that there was, of course, a gentleman named Abram, and later we came to recognize him as Abraham. So more often than not, I'm just going to refer to him in that way, but you understand that God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, and that didn't happen until Genesis chapter 17. And although the events of Genesis 12 and 14 were prior to that, I think I'm still going to just call him Abraham. That seems to be what naturally more quickly comes to my mind. But you'll notice that Abraham in Genesis 12 had been told by the God of heaven to leave where he currently was dwelling in Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place that he would be shown. And I suppose we've often remarked, what a statement of faith that was on his part. He left where he was living and journeyed to a place that he did not yet know. God was going to basically tell him when he got there. How comfortable would you and I feel behaving like that? Pack up your things and leave. And although you don't yet know where you're going, I'll let you know when you get there. That took a great deal of confidence and assurance of the God of heaven. And so it was that chapter 12, in fact, gives us some detail about the details and the features of that journey. But you and I might quickly observe that chapter 13 of Genesis brings us to this understanding. Lot, who is Abraham's nephew... They both had arrived at the point of being rather wealthy individuals. Their herds and their flocks and their herdmen were of such number that there became to be a quarrel between them. Now you might pause to notice, here was a quarrel between those who had appreciation of the God of heaven and they settled it, they dealt with it like this. Abraham said, you pick up which way you want to go and I'll go the other one. Abraham knew that it wasn't wise for people who believed in the same God, who had convictions relative to Him, to be quarreling amongst themselves and to be responsible for that happening. You and I remember the choices that they made. Lot chose that well-watered plain of the Jordan River Valley. Ultimately, that, of course, would be in the direction towards Sodom. Abraham chose the other direction. And we each remember what came to pass in the years that followed that set of choices. I might say, though, that we quickly learned that not only did Lot dwell in the direction towards Sodom, it wasn't very long he was living in the middle of the city. He was living in the city. And, of course, the problems that would come his way in chapters 18 and 19 were noticeable. And you and I have the truth of God to this day reminding us about what befell him and his family due to that nature of choices. Having said those things, though, we need to look at an intermediate chapter, namely chapter 14. It's probably the case that this is one of the lesser-known chapters in Genesis, and so I'll just overview it very briefly. But in that chapter, we find a very interesting scene of events. An alliance, or a confederacy as I've called it, of five kings entered into a war with another confederacy of kings, numbering four. Now, I've asked you to notice, among the particulars listed, these are the ones I would ask you to note. The king of Sodom was one of the five. You'll notice that among those of the four were Ketalaomer. Now, that's an unusual name. 
But at this point, observe this with me. Ketelamer and his group defeated the other ones. The group of four defeated the group of five. And Lot was taken captive. So, due to the nature of the victorious consideration of those four, they had the right, and thus they took captive. No doubt a whole host of the inhabitants of those places, and Lot was one of them. Word was brought to Abraham, your nephew's been taken captive. And at this point we notice that Abraham pulled together 318 of his servants, in essence formed a rather massive posse, and went after them. And they were victorious. He recaptured Lot, and in fact he brought him and his possessions back with him and brought them back to safety. Among other things, doesn't that highlight the kind of person that Abraham was? He was wealthy enough to have that many servants and wealthy enough to be able to arrange them in a kind of militia. And he was able to, in fact, with the skill set that they had, to overcome that set of kings that had just been victorious over that other group of kings. One must be impressed. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, I would ask you to notice that the victory then that Abraham enjoyed bringing them back quickly brings us to the closing verses of chapter 14. That victory that Abraham enjoyed brings us to note the following. Could I direct your attention to Genesis 14 and notice how Melchizedek appears? We encounter him for the first time in the Bible in this passage. Genesis 14 reads as follows. I'll begin reading in... Verse number 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him. This is Abraham after he was coming back from, from again recapturing Lot. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketelamer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the Possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abraham rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And there we have it. The Introduction of Melchizedek. Now, I've tried to highlight very briefly some of that which we've just read. But you notice that upon his return, as Abraham came back from that victory, Melchizedek met him. As we are introduced to Melchizedek, it is said that he was the king of Salem. So he was a king. But not only that, the next verse goes on to say he was priest of the Most High God. Here was a man who was both king and priest at the same time. You may want to keep that in mind. That's extremely rare. It's extremely unusual. He was both king and priest. Not only that, 
you notice that? He blessed Abraham. Now, as we shall see next Sunday evening, the greater always is the one who blesses the lesser. So he must have been greater than Abraham. And we all know what kind of person Abram was. He was the father of the faithful. He's the one so often looked to as that great friend of God. And yet, we notice that Melchizedek actually blessed him. Perhaps one final thing, and it is this, Abraham paid tithes to him. Our text just informed us of that truth. It is with those things in mind we now have been told a few facts about Melchizedek and Abraham's introduction to him. What about some lessons then, or at least some truths and observations that can be very helpful and at least intriguing to you and to me? Tonight, I'll just share five of them with you, and then we'll save the rest until next Sunday evening. But the first one is this one. I've simply entitled it beneath the heading of the word frequency. We know that the word frequency means the oftenness with which something is done. That's what I mean by it here as well. You may notice, again, we've just encountered Melchizedek, and he lived in the times of Abraham. That's when he actually walked this planet. But yet, in the lesson text for the evening, in Psalm 110, verse number 4, this is what we read. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And suddenly, the name Melchizedek occurs again. May I suggest to you that the book of Psalms was written well over a thousand years after the actual time of Abraham. And so Melchizedek was long dead. And yet, there was something about his life, something about his consideration, and the way in which he was what he was, that was a truth embedded in the very will of God. And so it is. That's the reason for our consideration of this. It's, an, it's, it's truly an impressive thing, isn't it? What was meant when the psalmist said, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Because after all, the book of Psalms was written in the life and times of the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Aaron and his sons were the priests. So why did the psalmist say it the way he did? Was he talking about Aaron? Was he talking about one of Aaron's descendants? If not, who was he talking about? That's part of what our discussion will no doubt need to seriously consider. You'll notice, though, one additional matter about that, and it goes back to that word frequency. On occasion, you might be asked the question, what is the single passage in the Old Testament that is quoted most often in the New now, please think again about the way I worded that. If you had to find the one verse out of all of the verses in the Old Testament, all 23,145 of them, which one is the one quoted most often in the New Testament? It's Psalm 110, verse 4. There's our answer. And it relates to Melchizedek. Something about Melchizedek is quoted seven times in the New Testament. That's rather remarkable. I'd suggest to you that is very intriguing. 
It is the case that all seven of those quotations will occur in the book of Hebrews, and so no doubt a fair amount of our discussion will in fact take us to that New Testament book of Hebrews. And that brings me to point number two in the lesson tonight. You may want to turn over to the book of Hebrews for just a moment and make an initial observation or two with me. In Hebrews chapter 5, we first come to a presentation that the inspired writer makes. If I could point out, the book of Hebrews is such that its background involved the following. There were individuals who had grown up and known well the faith of Judaism. They were Hebrews, if you please. They trusted the law of Moses, and yet they came to know Jesus. They obeyed the gospel. They left behind their commitment to to the law of Moses, and they simply were New Testament Christians. But because of that decision and because of that choice, they now were suffering great persecution. Persecution that caused them to be weary. Persecution that caused them to, in some instances, fear for the other matters of their life. We all remember how seriously the Jews persecuted people that claimed to be Christians. Remember what they did to Paul? Remember what they did to Jesus? Remember what they did to others? Once these people left the law of Moses behind and placed their confidence in New Testament Christianity, they suddenly found themselves greatly persecuted. And for many of them, their tendency then was this. I was never persecuted, they would say, when I was a Law of Moses obeyed person. I think I'll give up this business of Jesus. I'll go back to the Law of Moses. Life was simpler for me then. The book of Hebrews is a 13-chapter book that in fact impresses upon them from a number of perspectives. You do not want to leave Jesus. You cannot leave Him in faithfulness and go back to the law of Moses because that law is not even in existence anymore. After all, you can't go back to something that no longer is even in force. And as a part of that presentation, he points out Jesus is greater than the angels, chapter 1. Jesus is greater than Moses, chapter 3. And the priesthood that attaches to Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood because Jesus' priesthood is not after Aaron. It's after Melchizedek. And there's his argument. And thus he will devote upwards of three complete chapters in this book to talk about the priesthood of Jesus. And he shows time and again that it's connected to Melchizedek and not to Aaron not to any of the other Levitical priests of the Old Testament. And that presentation is rich and profound and so very interesting. In chapter 5, as I pointed your attention a moment ago, you'll notice in verse number 6 of that chapter, at least for the first time in this book, we encounter this wording, As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's an exact quotation from Psalm 110, verse 4. And thus, we again see the first of seven occurrences in this book, these references to Melchizedek. You'll notice on the slide, I've in fact listed the various verses in Hebrews wherein you find them. Hebrews 5, verse 6. Hebrews 5, verse 10. Hebrews 6, verse 20. 
Hebrews 7, verses 11, 15, 17, and 21. All of them testify that our Lord's priesthood is after Melchizedek's. Now already, I'm sure that your mind, as mine does when this subject rises, it begins to race in what way is the Lord's priesthood likened unto Melchizedek's? And in what way was Melchizedek, in essence, a type for which Jesus is the antitype? May I again say that this lesson and next Sunday night will develop that point somewhat interestingly using the book of Hebrews as our primary place of understanding. Lesson number three. It revisits that point that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. When you and I first encounter Melchizedek in Hebrews, or rather Genesis 14, one of the issues that captures our attention almost instantly is this. In one verse, he is said to be king of Salem. In the very next verse, he is the priest of the Most High God. Not that he was the priest, he is the priest. Meaning that he was both king and priest at the same time. He simultaneously occupied both of those positions and both of those offices. I've asked you to notice on the slide the following. Isn't it extremely unusual within the pages of the Bible to find a single person who is both king and priest at the same time? As you think through the Old Testament and give thought to the various kings of Israel, how many of them were also a priest? Not one of them. Because isn't it true that the characteristics that attach to the priesthood, you see, were such that God had decreed they had to come out of the tribe of Levi. And yet so often the kings came out of other tribes like Benjamin or Judah or perhaps even other places. And so the fact is one almost never encounters circumstances where the same person was both king and priest at the same time, and yet Melchizedek was. Now, the intriguing character of that, of course, is going to say much about Jesus, because aren't you and I so thankful? He is king and priest now. Now, I know that there are some, but they're mistaken, but they think that He is not yet king, but He will be at some future time. That's wrong. He's king now. Consider some of these verses that at least highlight both of those matters. Wasn't it true that Paul, in writing to Timothy, would say in 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, He is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings. He was referring to Jesus. He's king. But perhaps John, the writer of Revelation, said it most clearly in Revelation 17, 14, and then again in chapter 19, verse 16, when he pointed out that Jesus, the Lord, is King of kings and Lord of lords. So we're all very much appreciative of the fact that He is King. What about His priesthood? May I suggest to you that, as we noted earlier, three of the chapters of the book of Hebrews give their emphasis to the nature of Jesus as priest. Could I direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, 
Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. There Jesus is called high priest. Look at chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In between, in Hebrews 4, verse 15, a verse that's very familiar to us, it reads, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And we realize that that particular passage relates, of course, to Jesus. He is king and he is priest. Now you'll notice that highlights the truth then that he occupies both of those positions simultaneously in exactly the same way that Melchizedek did. There is one additional verse that I would ask you to notice, the fact that this was prophesied. And this is one of the most elegant and one of the most remarkable, it seems to me, of the Old Testament prophecies. Would you look with me at Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13? In the midst of that minor prophet, we encounter a reference to the nature of the kingship and the priesthood, and it took this form. Zechariah 6, verse 13. Even he, the text says, shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. Now, if I pause at that point, the person under description is such that he will rule on the throne, so he'll be king. But I didn't conclude the verse. Let me read on. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So there is a prophecy of the Old Testament that there was going to be a time when the same individual would occupy both priest and king. And you and I know that Zechariah was foretelling about Jesus Christ. And so again, the book of Hebrews has just tallied our understanding of the beauty of that arrangement. Aren't you thankful today that you and I serve beneath the priesthood, the perfect priesthood of Jesus, but He is also at the same time the great King of Kings? Doesn't that mean that the full arrangement that is both the government of His kingdom and the religious aspects of it are perfectly united in a most complete and delightfully pleasant way to God? That third lesson, namely the kingship and priesthood combined in the same person, brings us to lesson four. It has to do with a reminder of looking at Melchizedek on the one hand, and Abraham on the other. Isn't it true that there are several religious organizations or several religious bodies who lift Abraham very, very highly? In fact, isn't it true even the Muslims do that? They have a great regard for him because he was the father of Ishmael. And they look up a lot to Ishmael. To say all of that is to say that Abraham is highly regarded as the father of the faithful. Highly regarded as a person who had a powerful and close relationship with God. And Paul even develops that point at length in Romans chapter 4. But the point we noted earlier is this. As great a man as Abraham was, Melchizedek blessed him. 
Melchizedek was greater than he was. And suddenly on the biblical page we encounter a man then who stands above even Abraham. A person who in the greatness of his position, both king and priest, Abraham in fact submitted to Melchizedek. He paid tithes to him. On the slide I've asked you to notice that as Paul develops that point, In Romans chapter 4, he makes this observation. Abraham was not weak in faith. He is held up as such a high person of faith. Didn't Genesis 15, 6 say, He believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. And yet, Melchizedek was greater than he. Now may I remind each of us that we have a number of Old Testament chapters that describe Abraham and so few that describe Melchizedek. And yet, he's going to occupy a pivotal role when we come to the book of Hebrews for the most part next Sunday night. One last thing on that slide. The Hebrew writer will develop at least a part of this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. Could I invite your attention to that passage as the inspired writer says, Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Even the Hebrew writer says, if Abraham in his greatness paid tithes to and was blessed by Melchizedek, he said, consider how great Melchizedek must have been. Perhaps you and I have given too little attention to Melchizedek. That's in fact the hope of this lesson and the next, to remind us of what the Word of God has to say about that man. As we close that slide, the fifth and final point of the lesson tonight will develop this idea. So far, we've talked about the man Melchizedek, and we've highlighted some of the priesthood that was his. But one other point is worthy of our initial consideration, as at least we develop this point ready to springboard into the lesson next Sunday evening. And it has to do with the contrast to the Levitical priesthood. Now, I know that that wording is somewhat lengthy, or at least it's somewhat involved, it would seem. But all I mean by that is this. When God gave the children of Israel the law of Moses, there on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, you may remember that He specified to them the particulars of the priesthood. He declared, Aaron will be the first high priest, and his descendants, his sons, will occupy the priesthood. That's what I mean by the Levitical priesthood. All of them had to be of the tribe of Levi. Now, that Levitical priesthood was looked up to very greatly by the Jewish people because God had specified it, because God had ordained it, and because it occupied the particulars of the blessings God had given to it. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see many references to that Levitical priesthood. The Jews looked up to it greatly. The Hebrew writer's point is going to be this. As I said at the outset of the lesson tonight, under their persecution, they were often leaving Christianity and going back to the law of Moses and going back to the Levitical priesthood. And the Hebrew writer is shouting to them loudly, The priesthood under Jesus is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. 
the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the priesthood of Jesus because Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood is not after Aaron. It's not after the sons of Aaron. It goes back further than Aaron, back to Melchizedek. And Jesus is a priest forever after that order. As you can see on the slide, that Levitical priesthood, you well remember that so many of the particulars were said about it. God dictated what they were to wear. He dictated when they were to wear it. He dictated when they could enter into the most holy place. He dictated the particulars of the kinds of sacrifices they would offer. He specified when they would offer them and the way that they would be offered. The Levitical priesthood had to know all of those things. The details are given in the book of Leviticus by and large. But as you can see on that slide, Hebrews chapter 7 verse number 9 makes this interesting statement. And as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham. And the Hebrew writer's point is beautiful. He makes this observation. Do you recall Abraham had a son named Isaac? Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 boys, one of which was Levi. And Levi, of course, was the one who was the father of those that God ordained as priests. The Hebrew writer's point is then that as you trace through the descendancy, when you talk about the Levitical priesthood, they came out of their father Levi, who came out of Jacob, who came out of Isaac, who came out of Abraham. And so because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to Melchizedek as well. So Melchizedek was greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's his point. Don't you know that those people who were being tempted to leave Christianity and go back to the law of Moses, once they heard this, they stopped in their tracks, I suspect. Why would you want to go back to something inferior? Why would you want to go back to a priesthood that's less noble and less worthy than the one you have through Jesus? And I suspect many of them did, did not go back and stayed faithful to the Lord because they had a better priesthood in Jesus than they ever had under the law of Moses. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, the high priesthood of our Lord is perfect. May I emphasize the word? Jesus is sinless. Those priests of the Old Testament, they were just men. They committed sin. And so not only did they offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. The Hebrew writer is going to make that point in the opening verses of chapter 7. Jesus never had to make an offering for His own sin because He didn't have any. He never committed any sins. His priesthood is greater. It's more complete. It's more perfect. It has attachment to God that the Levitical priesthood never had. And may I so say, it has promises that it rewards the faithful with that the law of Moses never did. Why would you want to go back to the law of Moses when it could not offer what Christianity does? It could not offer forgiveness of sin, Acts 13, 38. 
It could not offer the fullness of promise in regard to citizenship in heaven, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. But Christianity does. The forcefulness of that argument, as deep and profound as it was, will be a matter we need to develop further. And we'll strive to do that if it be the will of God next Sunday night. Because there's more things the writer of Hebrews brings to our attention about Melchizedek. What else might we say? In what other ways is the priesthood of Jesus likened after Melchizedek? The Hebrew writer lists several points. We'll develop them next time. As we come near the close of our lesson tonight, this conclusion slide is basically a very small reminder of that which we've seen. The Lord's priesthood after Melchizedek. And we've looked quickly at five observations. First, the frequency of that point. The single most oft-quoted New Testament verse is Psalm 110, verse 4. It's the very matter we're discussing in Melchizedek. But the book of Hebrews is the gem of the Bible, and it will develop this more richly than all others. Point number three, Jesus simultaneously priest and king, just like Melchizedek was. Fourthly, we cast a spotlight on Abraham and Melchizedek and notice that he was greater than Abraham. And finally, the Levitical priesthood inferior to the priesthood of Jesus and that of Melchizedek because of the tithes reference in Genesis chapter 14. As we come to the close of this lesson tonight, it's an opportunity for each of us to consider with some examination, where do we stand with the Lord? Am I a faithful submission to His priesthood? If not, then there is no other priesthood like His. I can't depend on myself. I can't depend on men. There are people in our world who think about the Pope. He's not a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Never has been, never will be. For reasons we've already seen and shall see next Sunday evening as well. But you and I realize that one and only blessed potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords, is none other than the high priest of whom we've studied tonight, Jesus the Christ, whose priesthood is after Melchizedek. Tonight, if you haven't submitted to Him, or if you did at one time, but at least at this point in life you have chosen not to again, don't continue along that line of mistake. At the day of judgment, don't you want the perfect priesthood on your side of Jesus, the one pleading your cause and case, the one who is the only advocate with the Father, 1 John 2 verse 1? Surely we do. And if we could perhaps be of assistance tonight, if you make confession of sins known publicly, if you repent of them, the Lord will promise, He's promised to forgive you. We'd be delighted to pray for you. We'd be happy to do that this evening if we could be of help. Won't you come? All together we stand and sing.